I wasn't planning on preaching this morning. I've been out of town all week at our denomination's General Assembly meeting in Birmingham, Alabama, just returned this past Friday afternoon. But in God's providence, when our scheduled guest preacher became ill this week, I knew I'd have to pivot quickly to prepare a sermon for this Lord's Day. And when I selected Psalm 8 as my sermon text this week in a hotel room in Birmingham, I didn't know at that point, of course, that the Supreme Court's decision leading to the overturning of Roe v. Wade would be released in just a few days. But as it turns out, this text this morning, Psalm 8, serves perfectly, I think, as a, as a summary of the, the kind of argument for what we as a church believe regarding the dignity and value of human life. Uh, friends, I can't tell you how thankful I am um, for God's mercy and his kindness toward our nation this past week and the ruling that was released on Friday overturning Roe v. Wade. Thanks be to God. Like many of you, this is a day for which I have been hoping and praying um, for many years and um, for decades. Um, I read the news on Friday afternoon after flying back from Alabama, and I was overwhelmed um, with gratitude, with joy even. Uh, my father, Barry Anderson, directed a crisis pregnancy center in Richmond, Virginia from the mid-1980s until um, the early 90s, and so I grew up from an early age on the the front line, so to speak, of these matters. Um, our family was deeply um, connected um, to these issues. Um, I was 12 years old in 1992. Um, some of you may remember this. Um, I remember vividly that the hope and expectation that spring um, that Roe v. Wade might actually then, at that point, have been overturned um, as the Planned Parenthood versus Casey um, case was heard, as well as the, the deep sense of disappointment um, when that deeply flawed decision by the court was then handed down, reaffirming Roe. Uh, friends, to be crystal clear, and I want to be clear with you, um, as your pastor, I believe that Roe v. Wade in 1973 was a travesty of both constitutional, but more importantly, it was a travesty of biblical justice. Our own Westminster Larger Catechism states that the Sixth Commandment forbids absolutely forbids all taking away the life of ourselves or of others, except in the case of public justice, lawful war, or necessary defense, and the neglecting or the withdrawing of the lawful means, lawful and necessary means of the preservation of life. The Sixth Commandment forbids murder, the taking away of life. Holy Scripture clearly teaches on a number of occasions that human life begins at conception in the womb. The psalmist describes it in many places. John the Baptist, of course, leapt in the womb of his mother when Jesus, in the womb of Mary, approached him. Thus, to declare that a constitutional right, quote-unquote, exists to end human life in that womb was and is a grievous and wicked violation of Scripture's teaching. It is. While there are certainly other substantial examples of injustice and sin in our nation's laws and practices in our day, and there are many examples, make no mistake, friends, legally protected abortion on demand is 
the human rights issue of our day. It is. It is the most serious contemporary sin of our nation and indeed much of the Western world. For many years, I have prayed and hoped for Roe v. Wade to be overturned, and I must admit there were many times when I did not think that it would happen in my lifetime. I couldn't see it. To have the constitutionally protected right, quote-unquote, to abortion overturned in Friday's decision and the issue now returned to the states and their legislatures is, and we should see it this way, friends, it is a remarkable act of God's kindness, a kindness that we do not deserve as a nation. We do not deserve this. It's an act of kindness because it gives us a new opportunity as a nation to repent to repent of our sins and to pass, uphold, and apply wise and just laws to protect human life in the womb. What will we do with this opportunity for repentance? That's the question that is before us, before, indeed, our nation. But today, I simply say thanks be to God who in his kindness and love has providentially ended Roe v. Wade and has given us a new opportunity as a nation to turn from our sins and to pursue justice and righteousness in a new way. And may we as the church be the first to repent, the first to lead the way with repentance, humility, faithfulness, love, and mercy. May it be so. Friends, I invite you now to listen to God's word as it declares to us the glory, the wonder, the dignity of being human persons. Listen now to Psalm 8. It's printed for you on the back of your order of worship if you'd like to read there. Psalm 8, to the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, or more literally, O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. It is absolutely true, and it is given to you, friend, because your Father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of 
all of our hearts gathered here this morning to meditate upon your word would be found pleasing and acceptable in your sight. We ask this by your grace and through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. This psalm, Psalm 8, begins and ends with David praising God, with David declaring the Lord's name to be majestic in all the earth. But why does David praise God here in Psalm 8? He does so because of the glory of humanity, his own glory as a human being. This is what David is praising God for. In verse 2, David delights in the capacity that human beings, and particularly children, interestingly, have to praise God with their lips. He writes, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you, O Lord, have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. It's interesting that David begins here, right? The the glory of humanity is revealed most prominently in this, he says, that human beings have the capacity of speech and the freedom to use that speech to praise God with their mouths in a way that no other created being does. Of course, it is the ability to speak that most obviously sets human beings apart from the rest of creation. All of creation, make no mistake, praises God, right? Psalm 104 tells us that, but only men and women and children do so with the gift of language. O Lord, open my lips, David declares in Psalm 51, and my mouth will declare your praise. It is not enough, David is saying, to simply be thankful to God in our hearts. We must open our lips and proclaim it to fully embrace the glory of who God has made us to be. In Colossians 3, Paul says, be thankful. How should we be thankful, Paul? He tells us. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in this way, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Friends, in many ways, we are most truly human, most fully fulfilling our vocation and calling as human persons made in God's image when we use our God-given capacity of speech and language to praise his name, to declare his glory, to establish his strength against the enemy and the avenger. And beloved, this is why on Sunday mornings we sing. This is why. It's not just because we like it or we think it's a fun thing to do or it's pedagogically useful. We do it because God made us to sing praise to his name. We sing because song is language glorified. And in our corporate songs offered together on the Lord's Day in our worship, including the voices of infants and children. We are truly and gloriously human together. That's what we're doing when we sing in the Lord's Day worship. We're being human in a way that is potentially more human than anything else that we do all week long. But David does not only praise God for making humanity glorious through its praise. He also praises God for making humanity glorious because God has set his affection 
wondrously, graciously upon the human race. When I was a child, after I got to the age where I was old enough, maybe around you know, eight or nine, <clears throat> to have some sense for the size of the true size of, of earth, the earth itself, and then space beyond it. Uh, one of the things that I liked to do when I uh, was in bed at night was to lie there and kind of have a, a thought experiment, right? You're sort of lying in bed and thinking. First, I would imagine our house as though I was looking at it from above, from the sky. And then I would, I would widen the lens of my imagination and I'd imagine our neighborhood. And then all the houses on the streets around us and all the people inside those houses. And then I would expand a bit further and include the whole of the city of Richmond where I lived with its thousands of houses and about a million or so people. And then after I held that image in my mind, I would go out to Virginia and I'd still be trying to sort of isolate my own house in the midst of all of this, right? The whole state, right? The mountains in the west, the ocean to the east. And then I do the, the same thing for the, the entirety of the United States. And then if I felt really kind of brave, and I'm still trying to hold on to our house, right? You know, on the east coast of the United States, um, I would think about the world, right? I would try to go to the globe and imagine just all the people doing whatever they're doing. And, and my tiny little house in existence um, there in Virginia. And then if I was feeling really reckless, I would try to imagine the solar system, right, that we were in, that I'd recently learned about, you know, and, and the way that our planet was spinning and, and, and circling the sun and all the other planets in our solar system. And then I would try to imagine the galaxy and then all the stars and planets of the universe. I don't know why I did that exactly. I think it frightened me a little bit. Maybe that was part of why I did it, right? There's a little edge of fear and terror, just a little. It frightened me because I could hardly even comprehend my own minuscule existence when I tried to consider the space occupied by everything else that was out there. And yet I couldn't help returning to that image of the universe in my tiny, tiny place in it. And of course, David is doing something similar in this psalm when he says to God in verses 3 and 4, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, at the moon and the stars, when he looks up, he says, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Right? David looks out at the heavens, at the moon and the stars, and he says to himself, what is man in the midst of all of this? Who am I? Who are we as a human race in relationship to all of this that is out there? All of these wonderful things that God has created. But his answer, friends, is striking, and it's, the one, it's, a, it's an answer on which the, the logic of this whole psalm pivots and turns. In verse 5, he writes, yet, you have made him, meaning mankind, a little lower than the heavenly beings, and you've crowned him with glory and honor. I love that picture of the Lord crowning us with glory and honor, setting it upon our heads as something that we carry. You see, what David is saying is that looking out in the night sky is not an adequate way to judge the worth and significance of humanity. 
Yes, we are tiny in comparison to all that God has made. Yes, we are in some sense lost in the immensity of all things. And yet it is to us, David is saying, it is to human beings in this particular galaxy, in this particular solar system, on this particular planet that God has set his affection. God is mindful of us, he says. God cares for us. And he has crowned us like kings and queens with glory and honor. But friends, God does not only praise God, I'm sorry, David does not only praise God for the glory of humanity because God has given the human race the power of praising him with their lips or because he has set his affection upon them and crowned them with glory and honor. He also praises God because God has set the human race over all creation. That's the last portion of this song. In verses 6 to 8, as David continues to marvel at the wonders of the glory that God has entrusted to humanity, he says, you have given him, him again being mankind, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All things, David says, under the feet of mankind. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the seas. One commentator has noted that this part of Psalm 8 is simply um, Genesis 1 set to music, right? That reading we heard earlier this morning. I think that's right. Um, David here is marveling at the glory of humanity by trying to consider all the things that God has put under his feet to rule over as kings and queens of creation. He says there's sheep and there's oxen, there's the beasts of the field, there's the birds of the heavens, there's the fish of the sea. And then because he, you know, he just wants to make sure he includes it all, he says, oh, and also whatever it is that passes along the paths of the seas. This last item on the list is fascinating to me because even in this day and age of of, of science and advancement and technology, when human beings have gone to the moon, when we've sent, uh, you know, robots to Mars, much of the oceans of this world, and especially the depths of the oceans, the paths of the seas, remain unexplored by us. We haven't been there. We don't even know how to get devices down there because of the pressures. Right? Think about that moment, right? That line written thousands of years ago should still send a little shiver up our spines, right? Whatever it is that passes along the paths of the seas and the deeps. We know a lot of things as 21st century men and women, but one thing we still do not fully know is exactly what it is that passes along the paths of the deepest parts of the seas. Right? Perhaps there are still great fish and other sea animals, beasts of the sea out there waiting to be discovered and ruled over by mankind. For even those creatures are under the dominion of man. Then after considering all the ways that God has blessed and endowed the human race with his special love, with his glory, with his honor, David closes his psalm with a repetition of that first line, right? He brings it all together. O Lord, O Yahweh, he says, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Friend, the point of Psalm 8 is not 
how great God is and how puny and insignificant human beings are. No, no, the point of Psalm 8 is how great humans are, how important they are, how significant they are because of the affection that God has for them and the glory that he has entrusted to them and given to them, that he has crowned them with. So what, what does this psalm mean for us? We could say many things, but I think at least it means this, that this psalm forces us to wrestle with the reality that the Holy Scriptures teach us that human beings, as a human being, we are glorious. We are crowned with glory and honor. This is who we are. This is who you are. This is who I am. Right? To put it more personally, this psalm should force you, friend, to wrestle with the reality that you are glorious, for you are a human person. This glory of humanity, it's something I think it's often much easier for us to notice and appreciate in others than in ourselves, right? We can see it in others more easily. Think, for example, of babies, right? When you hold a baby, a newborn um, or a small child, a few months old, you know that they are glorious, right? Everything about them is amazing, right? Their eyes, their mouths, their cheeks, they're tiny, inexplicably tiny, amazingly tiny fingers and toes, right? Their smiles, right? The, the, the softness of their skin, the sound of their heart as it beats, it's all glorious. And we know it in that situation. We know it intuitively and utterly, right? Babies themselves know this, right? They, they hold out their hands and they stare at it like it's an amazing thing because it is, when they hold up their hand in front of their face, you can almost imagine what they're thinking, right? They're thinking, this is amazing. This is awesome. My hand is the most amazing thing in the universe, right? And, and they're, they're correct, actually, biblically speaking. But it, it's one thing to see that in a baby, in an infant. It's another to see it in ourselves, Right? Right? When's the last time you looked in the mirror and considered what was staring back at you, looked at your own face there, your own body, and thought, that is glorious. I don't know about you, but that's not something that comes naturally to me. And yet, this is what David is saying about each one of us in this psalm. He's saying that if you are a human person, the God whose fingers carved the heavens, right? The, the God who sent um, the millions and millions of stars into the sky. The God who upholds the universe by the word of his power. That God stoops to consider you and to care for you. That's what the psalm is saying. That he cares for you in the midst of the details of your life. He cares for you as you look for a parking space. Right? He, he cares for you as you read a book or brush your teeth. He cares for you as you sleep and when you wake. And he doesn't only care for you, David says. He also crowns you. He has crowned you with glory and honor. It is given to you as a gift, as an endowment. 
That's what David is saying here. And if we take him seriously at all, we have to wrestle with this reality of what God has done in the creation of human beings, of which you are one. And that means when you stand in front of the mirror when you wake up in the morning or before you go to bed and you look at yourself, when you look at your face that is so familiar, so full of whatever it is you've come to think about over, uh, over the years, you, you, you should learn, friends, to hear God's voice there saying, you are a man, you are a woman, and you are glorious. You are crowned with glory and honor. The shape of your nose, glorious, that's what God thinks. The color of your eyes, glorious, that's what God says. The way your body moves and takes up space in this world, glorious, he says. I made it that way. The sound of your voice, which is utterly unique, different from anyone else's, glorious. That's what God says. Friends, I want to be clear here. I'm not talking about what is sometimes known as working on your self-esteem, right? The whole modern concept of self-esteem, it's an effort with good intentions, but, but often fails um, because it's usually applied in situations where humans have forgotten that they're glorious and that that's something that's given to them, not something that they have to impress upon themselves. All right, friends, I'm not talking about gritting your teeth and making up your mind to think good thoughts about yourself. I'm talking about realizing that you have been given something by God as a birthright. That you possess a glory that has nothing to do with what you think about yourself. It's not subjective in that way. It's objectively true because it has everything to do with what your creator says about you. What he has declared to be true. The glory of your body, the glory of your mind, the glory of your total self, it's an objective reality because it is rooted in the reality that you bear the imago Dei, the image of the living God. And so your glory is not something you could put aside even if you wanted to. You could not discard it. C.S. Lewis says this, he says, there are no ordinary people. It doesn't exist, he says. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked, he says, to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal. Right? They will die, they will fall away, they'll cease to exist. And their life, he says, is to ours, meaning human beings, as the life of a gnat. It is immortals, Lewis says, with whom we joke, and work, and marry, and snub, and exploit. He says, next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. And if he is your Christian neighbor, he is holy in almost the same way. For in him also Christ, glory himself, is hidden. Beloved, this is why 
in a positive way why the protection of human life in the womb is so important, so central to a biblical ethic. Because every man, woman, and child, every infant, including those yet in the womb and unborn, are created in the image of the living God and crowned by him with glory and honor. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Heavenly Father, indeed, we give you thanks this morning for your word, for this psalm. We pray that you would help us to wrestle with what it is to be human, what it is to be crowned by your hand with glory and honor and set over all of your creation, given the vocation of opening our lips and declaring your praise. Grant us wisdom and grace, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.